thing we want to see in the first two verses of this Psalm of David, of, of Psalm 24, is the sovereign authority of God in creation. The sovereign authority of God in creation. Now, politically speaking, I know they're like, man, he's been gone two weeks and he's going to jump right on the politics. Politically speaking, America is free. That's one of the great things about America. Free. You have constitution, you have amendments, we're a republic, a democratic republic, and there's representation of the people, but it's we the people. We have freedom. And it kind of sticks in the mouth of us sometimes when we point out a remarkable Christian truth that cannot be avoided. You are not free. That bothers us. Because America. I'm free. No, you're not free. You answer to someone, and it's not just yourself. Whether you believe in the Lord or not, you have someone who has absolute sovereign authority over your very life itself. Look at what it says. The earth is the Lord's. The whole earth. And all it contains, everything in the earth. And in case somehow you were wanting to leave yourself out of that equation, David makes it very clear in the second part of verse 1. The world, and usually in the scripture, both Old and New Testament, when they stop talking about the earth and they start talking about the world, they're no longer talking about the physical realm of the earth. They're talking about the people who inhabit the earth. That's the concept of the world, usually. Not always, but usually. The world and all those who dwell in it, that's me. That's you. And who does it belong to? Who has control over it? Who has final say about it? God Almighty. Not you. Not me. Not some elected official. Not some nation state boundary that's drawn on a map. Not some exercise of great military might. Not some document written laying out rights and privileges for you living behind the borders of that nation state drawn on a map. No, the one who has final say over all things everywhere in the world and on the earth is the Lord Almighty. The earth is the Lord's. And all it contains. It belongs to him. He has this authority over the earth by means of both creation and by means of possession. He has made it and it belongs to him. And when it talks about all that it contains. All that it may. Can you think, think about that for a moment? All that it contains. From the mysterious, strange, seeing the dark fish at the deepest part of the ocean. To the unusual and strange animals that live 
in the highest mountains and everything in between. Every rock, every stream, every atom of existence on this planet, every human being, every nation state, every place that has some sort of a skirmish, some sort of a war, the presence of famine, the presence of cancer, the presence of victory, the presence of birth, the presence of death. Everything in this world is the Lord's. You are not free. You have someone that you will answer to. You just do. To rebel against this thought is to thumb your nose at the God who gives you breath. You breathe because He supplies air For you. And when you hear the atheist cry his curses at God, God has supplied the air moving across the vocal cords which he created to form the words that were crafted in the brain that he made, that is all a reflection of his greater image. To allow that person in his kindness not to receive immediate judgment for cursing the name of the God that keeps him alive in that moment. Sovereign authority of God over all creation. Now, why would David start like this? I mean, he didn't even ease us into this. He didn't even kind of warm us up a little bit. He just threw a hammer down on us. He threw truth bombs on our head. He said, the earth's the Lord's. He left no room to wiggle around at all. He came out with a serious one-two combo. Knocking out any sort of objection to the place of glory of God. Why why would he do this? Why would he start this this way? Because in a moment, when we get to verse 3, he's going to talk about who is welcomed into the presence of this kind of God. And we need to understand the kind of God whose presence we're coming into so that we come rightly into that presence. All throughout the scripture. The attitude of those who come into the presence of the Lord is overwhelming fear. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We don't just saunter into the presence of God. Contrary to what you've seen on the bumper sticker and the t-shirts, he's not your co-pilot, he's not your homeboy, he's not your boyfriend. This is not what the scripture says about God Almighty. It's just not. And when David gets ready to talk about going into the presence of God, he wants us to have a very clear understanding of whose presence we're about to go into. So who may enter the presence of the Lord? Verse 3. Who may ascend? 
who may stand? He asks these profound questions. These are questions worth asking. We ask a lot of questions that are not worth asking. Somebody lied to you in school. There are stupid questions. There really are. And we are in the habit of asking them. We just are. We waste our time and our thinking on frivolous things. David does not do this here. Look at the question he asked. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? What questions? This is the, this is the God who's made everything. The God who controls everything. The God who owns everything. The God who sovereignly has authority over all that has been made, including myself. How can I stand in that God's presence? Great question. And David gives us a fantastic answer. Notice what he says beginning in verse 4. Here are the requirements to ascend the hill of God and to stand in His presence. First, he who has clean hands. This isn't COVID sanitary washing. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the moral purity of what your hands have done. The picture of hands doing things in the, in the scripture is the picture of moral or immoral action. What have my hands been about? What has been produced from my life? Is it moral? Is it immoral? Have I built toward the good? Have I built toward the wicked? And it says here in this text that the only ones who can come and stand in the presence of this sovereign, almighty God who is ruler over all creation, you have to start with clean hands. Hands that have not been part of the doing of impure, immoral, godless things. We really don't need to read the rest of the list. At least I don't. Maybe you're sitting in your pew this morning lying to yourself saying, I've got clean hands. No, you don't. I know full well I do not. A significant portion of my life, even since becoming a Christian, has been marked by the pursuit of that which is not moral. Just has been. And goodness forbid we peel back the veil and look at what my life was like before I met Jesus. It was a profound pursuit of that which is immoral. Do not have clean hands. There is no way that I could make that statement in my own strength, in my own power, in my own weight, in my own perspective. Nothing in me apart from Jesus Christ screams clean hands. It just doesn't. And friend, I want to break the bad news to you this morning. It doesn't for you either. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see what other bad news David has for us this morning. So who can come into the presence of the Lord? The one who has clean hands. All right, well, that's not me. What else do you got, David? And a pure heart. Really? (laughs) So you're not just going to gauge me by my outward actions, which for the most part often are repulsive. You're also going to gauge me by my inward actions. The stuff people don't, the the stuff people don't, they don't even see it. Those inner thoughts, 
those inner passions, those inner desires, that inner drive, those longings that I have that may never reach the fruition of action, but they're still there inside of me and I mull over them and I contemplate them and I, and I wrestle with them. And I give them life in my imagination. I also have to have complete purity in that realm. And friends, you could have seen what my hands have done. Thanks be to God, you will never see what my heart has done. Because as bad as some of the actions that I've had in my life were that could be seen by those on the outside because of the uncleanness of my hands, you would shrink away in disgust and fear of the darkness of my impure heart. It terrifies me when I really shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ on it. So uh, strike two. Strike two. David, man, you're just encouraging everybody today. Appreciate it, man. It's great. But he doesn't stop there. You have to have clean hands. You have to have a pure heart. You have to not have lifted your soul up to falsehood. A better translation is that you should not have vainly lifted up your soul. In other words, you never had an idolatrous point of worship. There was never anything in your life that took the glorious place of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. You never exalted your job above Jesus. You never exalted your spouse above Jesus. You never exalted your kids above Jesus. You never exalted money above Jesus. You never exalted fame above Jesus. You never exalted comfort and security and peace above Jesus. We could keep running through the list of things that are commonly used and as an idolatrous substitution for Jesus. But I think we get the point. We've all lifted our souls up vainly at some point or another in our lives. David's still not done with us. David's still dropping these hammers on us. Not only that. Not only do you have to have clean hands and a pure heart and not vainly lifted up your soul, but you have to have not sworn deceitfully. Everything that has ever come out of your mouth has to be pure gold truth. Any takers. I mean, I know it's an act of love, but all of us have either lied to our spouse or to our kids at one point or another just because we love them. We exchange truth for love. Amen. That's right. I mean, when your kid comes to you, when they're really, really little, and this is going to break everybody's heart, but it's just what it, it is what it is. When your kid comes to you when they're really little and they're learning how to draw, they learn how to color, unless you gave birth to a Picasso. Unless, unless, you know, Da Vinci or Michelangelo is living in your house at four years old. And they bring you this picture that you have to ask a lot of probing questions about to understand what it is. And the weird markings of purple and orange and black and green that are in cross-hatched patterns 
come to find out is a giraffe. And you look at them and pat them on and say, what do you say? It's what? It's so good. This is the best giraffe I've ever seen. Liar! And this is a coy, fun example. But we're prone to deceitfulness. We're prone to lying. We're prone to stretching the truth or under expressing the truth or just outright exchanging the truth for that which is false. We swear deceitfully all the time. Hey, hey, can you do this thing for me? Yeah, I promise I'll get that thing done and the thing remains undone. We do it all the time. And so David gives us four categories. Hey, if you want to come and climb up on the hill and stand in the holy place of the sovereign God of all creation, here it goes. Here's your checklist. You got to have clean hands. You got to have a pure heart. You can't have lift up your soul vainly and you can never have sworn deceitfully. Is that any of us? The answer is no. No. It's not. If it could be, what would we receive? What benefit would we receive if this could be us? And it says here, he shall receive the person who is this way. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If. Such, the word this could really be translated such, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek God's face. Now, I want you to notice something that gets overlooked. And I mentioned it a few weeks ago because it happened in another psalm. It happens here again. I want you to notice something that David does, and it's very subtle. And we miss it all the time in the Old Testament expression of Jacob. Notice what he says. He'll receive blessing from the Lord. Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face. Even who? Jacob. Rewind. Pop quiz. Old Testament. Jacob is also who? Israel. When did he become Israel? After God met him. When did he stay Jacob? What does Jacob mean? Jacob means the. Jacob means the one who is false. Jacob is the one without clean hands. Jacob is the one without a pure heart. Jacob is the one who has lifted up his soul vainly. Jacob is the one who has sworn deceitfully. His very name means this. Jacob, when you read the story of Jacob before he becomes Israel, he always talks about his father's God and not his God. The God of my father, the God of my father, the God of my father. And then when he becomes Israel and at the end of his life and he's about to die and he's been rescued from the famine, he says, my God. It becomes personal and real and there's a transformation. So why would the Holy Spirit inspire David to talk about even Jacob seeking the face of God? Because he knows none of us have clean hands. 
None of us have pure hearts. None of us have not lifted up our souls falsely. None of us have not sworn deceitfully. We are all like Jacob. But even Jacob, when he is met with the grace of God, can receive the blessing of righteousness and salvation. It's beautiful. I absolutely have nothing in me worthy of ascending the hill of God. So what did God do? He descended from his hill. As the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and he walked on this lowly earth and then he climbed up a different hill, the hill of the skull, Golgotha, and he died my death in my place. And now God himself reaches down and brings me up to his hill and he gives me clean hands and he gives me a pure heart and he causes my soul to not be in vain and he causes my mouth to have pure words of truth. The truth of the gospel laced into worship and joy and hope upon my lips. And he welcomes me in and he changes my name from deceiver to the one who strives along with God. It's beautiful, man. Wow, it's beautiful. And so who is this? What kind of God is this? He's the king of glory. That's who he is. Notice what it says. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. I I, want to kind of give you a, a little background about what's happening here. This is a victory march for generations For generations, ancient peoples all over the world, they did it in Babylon, they did it in Egypt, they did it in um, uh, Rome. Uh, This was just kind of a thing that people did. They would go out and they would wage war. They would overthrow the enemy. And whoever was the leader, even if they weren't there, usually they were, but even if they weren't there, they would meet the victory procession out. They would get at the front of the procession. All of the generals and soldiers would be behind them. All of those that they had taken captive that they didn't kill in war would be in chains behind them. Demonstrating their loss and their defeat. And they would announce with music or with loud singing or with a verbal announcement or some combination of those things that that the king had returned and that he had received victory over the enemies and he'd overthrown those who stood against the kingdom and that all was well and good and safe. And they would throw the doors open and the king would march into his kingdom with all of his enemies behind him in subjection to him. Lift up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This is a picture of victory. Friends, what kind of victory? A military victory? Could it be eschatological victory? Sure. Friends, I would contend this morning that this is a picture of the victory of salvation that Jesus Christ has achieved for us. We'll get to that in the New Testament in just a second. But I want you to notice something. 
This is why I think this is a salvific victory. Where it says, be lifted up, O ancient doors. The better way to translate that, be lifted up, everlasting entrance. The king of glory is entering the place of everlasting glory as the victor. The one who has won victory for us. He is being honored by those he has won victory for. Who is he? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. It continues in verse 8. The Lord, strong, mighty in battle. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gate. Be lifted up, O everlasting entrance, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And I, I want you just quickly, as we get ready to close this morning, we'll do a little exercise and then we'll be done. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to move through a few verses in Hebrews, a verse in Revelation, and we'll close. But I want you to see what Jesus Christ... I want you to see if you can hear Psalm 24 in the work that Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And He, the Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Let's go back to the first part of Psalm 24. The maker of heaven and earth. All things are his. They all belong to him. He's made them. He's established them. And when he made purification of sins, I didn't have clean hands. I didn't have a pure heart. I didn't have a right soul. I had false lips. I needed purification to be made that I might stand in the holy presence of the Most High. So a king went out and waged war. He made purification for sins. Friends, all throughout the New Testament. It uses the metaphor and the picture of spiritual battle being done on the cross. Jesus is waging war against his enemies on the cross. And he, though appearing to be defeated, is actually securing a great victory. And when he has made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He walked through the open gates with his enemies trailing behind him. And he sat down and declared, I am victorious. That's what he did. Hebrews chapter 10. Flip over a couple of pages. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll back up to verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Know that. Know that. If you're relying on someone else to make an offering for you to be right with God, know that other than the Lord Jesus Christ making that offering, it cannot and will not take away your sins. Know that. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, one sacrifice for sins. For how long? Till next week? No. For all 
time. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. I waged war. My weapon was the cross. My victory was the resurrection. And I marched through the open gates of glory. And I sat down on my throne. King of the universe. Another page or two. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let's back all the way up to verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, go back and read chapter 11. It talks about all the great people who've gone before who had faith. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us. Doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Who is what? The author And the perfecter of our faith. Who did what? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and then did what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross is victory. Strong and mighty. Strong in battle. This is the king of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. He has accomplished a great victory. And every time here in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, what does he do next? He sits down on his throne. I won. I have a victory. I'm the king. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I've now thrown open the gateway of salvation for my people. And even though they didn't have clean hands, and even though they didn't have pure hearts, they are now welcomed in because of what I did for them. I know I've used this example before, but it's my favorite example. Any championship sports team has the one guy who sits on the bench and never plays. I may or may not have been that guy from time to time in my life. But if you win the championship, guess what? Get a ring. And you get to go around telling everyone, I'm a champion. Jesus was born for us. He lived righteously for us. He died for us. He was resurrected for us. He did all the work. And you know what he does for us? He says, hey, hey, come here and sit on this throne with me and let me crown you with my glory. Last one, Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three. The letter to the church at Philadelphia. We're back up to verse 11. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Participants in his glory. It's insane. And he who overcomes... Listen to what happens to the one who overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him 
the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Why can he do this? How can he do this? How is this even possible that this can happen for us? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And the king of glory has won a great victory for his people. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the king of glory. Thank you that the everlasting entrance has been opened to welcome him in as the great victor. He has been seated at the right hand of the father. He makes intercession for us forever. And he brings us up from the depths below onto his high and holy hill and seats us with him in heavenly places. Crowning us with glory. And righteousness and beauty and goodness and truth. All things that were not ours. All things that only belong to him. And he has wiped clean the slate of our impure hands. Our impure hearts. Our vainly lifted up souls. Our deceitful mouths. And he has made us new. And he has given us blessing and righteousness and salvation. And Father, this morning as we ponder the goodness and the glory of this king who has done all of these things for us, all of grace, not of our works. In a moment as we prepare to sing, let us raise our heads and our voices like these ancient gates And declare the majesty of King Jesus. Father, that's easy to do here. Father, when we wake up in the morning. We're not surrounded by our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're not participating in the means of grace of a corporate worship service, when we're not sitting under the teaching of the word, when we're not collectively praying together, when we're not singing praises together, but we're facing the difficulty and the stubbornness and the darkness of the world that we live in. Father, let us then, even in those moments, declare the wonder of Jesus. And let our hearts be full of joy and of hope and of peace that King Jesus is our King and our friend. And we are no longer His enemies But we are welcomed in to you, Father, as sons and daughters. With Christ Jesus as our brother and the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the inheritance that is ours to receive one day. Father, do not let us live lives that reflect when we were Jacob. When we were deceivers. When we were Speaking of someone else's God, but Father, let us live lives of Israel, one who is striving with God ourselves and declares God is our God.
And Father, we thank you in advance for the blessing and the compassion and the mercy and the love that you will continue to pour on us. Not because we deserve it, but because you are a gracious king of glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.